Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started here. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, here we're here today to talk about the Real ID Act, the Pass ID Act, and national identification systems. Uh, very important subject, obviously, given uh, the nexus or the perceived nexus between identification policy and immigration and counterterrorism efforts. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, so uh, we'll go ahead and introduce our first speaker. But before I do, let me just note that, uh, that this presentation will be available on our website in our archived events section. So if you want to go back and check it out again, or if you want to uh, refer uh, a, uh, a colleague to the, the presentation, by all means, you can do so uh, there at uh, Cato.org. And of course, all of our information is available there, all of our uh, papers that we write, our op-eds, other events, all there at uh, Cato.org. Our first speaker today is Chris Calabrese. He is a counsel uh, for the uh, Technology and Liberty Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, he's a graduate of Georgetown University Law School as well as uh, Harvard University. And prior to joining the ACLU, he served as the legal counsel to the Massachusetts Senate, my, Senate Majority Leader. With that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Chris. Thanks. It's good to be here. I uh, appreciate Cato giving me the opportunity to talk about national ID in more than a 30-second soundbite because uh, it's one of those issues that doesn't really lend itself to quick compression. And, and I feel like sometimes people look at me like, well, what is the ACLU really concerned about here? Like, what's the big deal? So I'm going to take my eight to ten minutes to just talk a little bit about what we think the big deal is with national ID, and I'll intersperse a little bit of, uh, of concern about past ID and real ID as well. Fundamentally, the ACLU looks at national ID cards as an attack on our most fundamental freedoms. Essentially, when you adopt a national ID card, suddenly you're right to do a lot of things that used to be just your given right as an American, whether it's to travel, whether it's to work, whether it's to enter a federal facility, is derived from a credential. Now, suddenly, instead of just being able to do these things, you need the government's approval. Um, there's a reason that show us your papers, please, is so closely associated with repressive regimes. Everything from the old Soviet Union, um, clearly it played a part in the uh, horrors that happened in World War II. Um, national ID cards basically can turn into a lot of things. Both They both start as a simple way to identify individuals, and then they creep into a way to control how individuals move. There's a reason that national ID cards were rejected by the Reagan administration. President Clinton called them creeping big brotherism. Of course, they are creeping big brotherism. I mean, what else are you going to call a system that creates a massive infrastructure for tracking our movements and for controlling where we go? Um, the ACLU has always been concerned, of course, about mission creep. Um, you see recently Senator Schumer said that he would like a national identification system to be used as part of electronic employment verification so that everyone would need some kind of identification. And he's actually talking about, about a biometric fingerprint identification. So now suddenly you're going to need to have a national ID card in order to work. Um, Real ID and pass ID, of course, have these problems. There, uh, you know, real ID you needed to travel. Under pass ID, what you see is still a difficulty getting on an airplane, a lot of TSA discretion if you don't have a pass ID in how you're going to, whether you're going to be allowed to board an airplane. 
and some, some indeterminate amount of federal facilities you won't be able to enter if you don't have a pass ID. In addition, of course, to the, to the mission creep and um, internal passport concerns, there's also a concern about the bureaucracy that national IDs cause. Um, you, what you see is, to take an example from a real ID context, in Alabama in 2005, um, the, Alabama, the state of Alabama wanted to get a jump on the real ID requirements. So what they said was that every Alabama license, the name on every Alabama license must exactly match the information that's in the Social Security database. So, and they sent letters to that effect to about 70,000 drivers in Alabama. And of course, they started with the drivers who had licenses for the longest, who were mostly senior citizens. So seniors got this letter, and they saw, you know, if you don't fix your information, you're not going to be able to drive. And so senior citizens poured into the Alabama DMV, and you had folks, you know, waiting in line literally for days. And then, I mean, my favorite part of this is one woman, after literally standing in line for like three days, was told, you know, she could fix her license and get a new license with the, the correct name, but of course she was going to have to pay the $18 fee to change it. And she, you know, she went, I believe in her own words, she hit the roof. So you see a lot of these concerns because people need to bring identification documents. They need to prove who they are. They need to bring their birth certificate in. Um, and, you know, the punchline on all of this is, of course, that national ID cards don't protect Americans. They don't provide security. It's a very counterintuitive idea for most of us because we think that, and this is basic human psychology, we think that knowing someone tells us whether we're going to be secure with them. You know, we apply this principle with our friends, with our neighbors. The more we know, the better, you know, if we know who they are, we'll, you know, we'll be able to trust them. Well, that's not true in the abstract. It's not true when you look at the broad country. I mean, Timothy McVeigh, Ted Kaczynski, these were all people who were easily identified, the Beltway Sniper. They were, these were folks who were able to get ID, but of course that provided no security or actual safety. I mean, Government Computer News called Real ID the worst security idea of 2005. That gives you a sense about, you know, how it was regarded. Um, in addition, of course, you know, the, the, all the identity-based security measures that exist now that would key off a national ID, for example, the terrorist watch lists, are a complete debacle. I mean, there's more than a million identi identities in the terrorist watch list. People are stopped who are on the terrorist watch list all the time at airports, by police. In the large share, in the lion's share of those cases, as a matter of fact, and I can think of very few cases where this is not true, those, those contacts resulted in absolutely nothing. So think about that. You have people who are on the terrorist watch list who are presumably very dangerous, though apparently not dangerous enough to actually arrest if you encounter them. So this entire identity-based security measure simply doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't protect us. It also, when you create a rigid, rigid standardization of identity documents, you also alienate a lot of people who are simply trying to live their lives in America. Specifically, a number of religious minorities 
have strong religious objections to being photographed, the Amish, the Mennonites. Folks like these have long held a special place in America and have long been able to work within our federal system so as their religious beliefs are not trampled. Many states have found ways to create exceptions for religious beliefs. Now, something like a pass ID or real ID eliminates those exemptions, and it says that you will not be able to you know, get a pass ID if you do not have your photo taken, if you do not submit to these, these requirements. So these are, I mean, no one is going to infiltrate the Amish in order to get you know, access to our country, to get an ID that doesn't have a photograph. Nor is an ID that doesn't have a photograph going to you know, get them anywhere. And matter of fact, I suspect that it would arouse much more suspicion than simply presenting a photo document that doesn't, you know, a, a regular photo document. But something like Pass ID wipes that out. You also have the largest privacy, the large privacy problems that are created when you put all of this information in a giant database. Now, this was a, a singular problem in Real ID because it created a massive federal database of all driver's license information and all the information that you need to, you know, get a driver's license, such as your, a scanned copy of your birth certificate, your social security number. Now, Pass ID, unfortunately, gets, well, in some part, eliminates that national database, but it still requires state databases, and it still creates a pilot program for states to reach out to every other state to assure that a driver doesn't have a license in any other state. So that's still the, base, the possible basis for a national ID card or a national ID database. But let me, let me give you one real-world example of the dangers of aggregating data information. Victims of domestic violence have long been concerned about the vulnerability they face when, when their principal address, when their address information is known. Because it's, you know, this is the kind of information that their stalkers, their abusers, are looking to get their hands on, and they'll, you know, and they'll work very hard to do that. Before Real ID and Pass ID, many states allowed you to put a post office box down for your address. Many states allowed you just to put your sister's address down or your, you know, somewhere else to, to protect your privacy. Well, Real ID said, no, you have to have the principal address on the driver's license. Well, that's a really dangerous piece of information. I mean, driver's license databases are not terribly secure. They're accessed by an awful lot of people. And, and domestic violence advocates have many stories of people who've had their driver's license information and they're you know, accessed, and that information has been used against victims. So Pass ID creates what seems to be an exception. It says you know, domestic violence victims will be able to shield their address. Well, that's great, but it still means a bureaucratic process they have to go through. They still have to prove they're a victim. They still have to, you know, they still have their driver's license at, or still have their address somewhere in the database. This, you know, this kind of privacy problem is endemic when you collect large amounts of information in a database. Now, everybody always says that the ACLU are naysayers, and we don't have solutions. We only have, we only talk about what's wrong. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's not always the case. We believe that there are solutions for strengthening driver's license security. We believe there are ways that 
we can safeguard our driver's licenses without creating a national ID card. And Representative Steve Cohen from Tennessee has agreed to sponsor a bill, and I believe there are uh, dear colleague letters in the back, um, which creates a process through a negotiated rulemaking which would reform our driver's license system, work cooperatively with the states to, make, to create a system that isn't as burdensome, doesn't create these kind of identity requirements that fo force folks to jump through all these hoops. It doesn't, you know, it allows religious minorities to, to have the same state-based exemptions that they have now. It doesn't create a national database. It doesn't require the driver's license for set federal purposes. And it still brings all the people who care about driver's license security in a room together to find solutions to the actual problems that may face driver's licenses. So it's Representative Steve Cohen, and it's his, his office. Um, and of course, I urge anyone who, who shares our concerns with national IDs to contact his office and to, uh, to sign on to the bill. Um, thank you. Of course, I think we'll be doing questions at the end, right? Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I should note there are plenty of seats here in the front for folks that are, are standing in the back. If you want to make your way and grab a seat there, by all means, feel free. Um, our next speaker is uh, David Williams. Dave is the Vice President of Policy at Citizens Against Government Waste. Uh, he is an expert on government waste and uh, the budget process, as well as today's subject, uh, identification policy. He's uh, testified numerous times on Capitol Hill before a variety of committees and uh, also authored a number of publications, including the Pig Book, Prime Cuts, several state piglet books, and numerous investigative reports. Uh, Dave has a Master's of Art in Political Science from Villanova and a Bachelor of Science in Telecommunications from Cutstown University. Dave? Thanks, Brandon. Uh, first of all, does anyone know where Kutztown University is? It's uh, a small school in Pennsylvania. When you first look at the invitation for this uh, discussion, you see the ACLU, you see Cato, and you see Citizens Against Government Waste. It's almost, uh, sounds like the start of a corny joke, that the, the three groups walk into a bar. But, but I think it's, it's really telling about the political diversity of this issue and how both sides of the political spectrum, left and right, are concerned about real ID and any sort of reincarnation of real ID with pass ID. Uh, you probably know a lot about the ACLU and even probably more about Cato. Let me talk about Citizens Against Government Waste, why we're here and why we're in this discussion. We came out of the uh, Grace Commission. This was an effort by President Reagan to go through the federal budget, every nook and cranny, to find ways to make the government more efficient and more effective. You may remember the $400 hammer the $600 toilet seat. Those were two things that the Grace Commission uncovered back in the, the mid-80s. Today, Citizens Against Government Waste has about 1.2 million members and supporters across the country. Uh, as Brandon mentioned, we are probably best known for our congressional pig book. This is the expose of uh, pork barrel spending uh, by Congress. Some of my favorite examples are half a million dollars for a teapot museum in North Carolina, $50 million for an indoor rainforest in Iowa. Yes, an indoor rainforest, not outdoors. That would make too much sense. And one of my favorite of all times is the Tiger Woods Foundation. 
received $100,000 from the federal government. If there were ever anybody in the history of the, the universe that didn't need a handout, it's uh, Tiger Woods. <laughs> so Real ID, why are we here? Well, back in the summer of 2005, uh, Jim and I have been friends for 12, 13, 14 years, maybe. <laughs> in the summer of 2005, Jim called me and he said, have you seen the Real ID Act? Have you seen what has just happened in Congress? And I hadn't. He said, well, you need to read this. And I said, I am going to read it because with Jim, it's trust but verify. <laughs> so I got a copy of the Real ID Act and reading through this, a lot of things were very alarming to uh, the folks at Citizens Against Government Waste. We saw this huge unfunded mandate that was going to be put on the states. There wasn't a dollar figure that was really put in there. I think there's a dollar figure of $100 million that this was going to cost. And we knew that was bunk, that that really was not a realistic number. Then we saw these privacy issues. Uh, building this database, as, uh, as Chris alluded to, and having this information, people's most personal information in a database. And then the kicker was that there's a proposal to use radio frequency identification on these driver's licenses. Imagine walking around town with this little thing on your driver's license just screaming your information to people uh, who, wa who want to read it. So. That's how we got involved in this, is the cost and the privacy. In October of 2005, we re released a report called uh, Real ID. Big brother could cost big money. We did a lot of uh, financial analysis looking at what it would cost states. And our estimation was, at the time, roughly $17 billion that states were going to have to come up with to pay for implementation of Real ID. So after we released the report, we also talked about a lot of the privacy concerns with the database and RFID. We decided to take it to the next level, do some grassroots activism. We contacted 40,000 of our members via email, and 5,200 of them sent emails to then-Secretary Chertoff to complain about the cost of it and the intrusion of privacy. We also noticed something. We joined the coalition with Jim and with Chris and the ACLU, but we also noticed that states across the country we're also reading this legislation and looking at the financial and privacy implications of what was going to happen. The more the states read this, the more they rejected it. We saw blue states, we saw red states, we saw purple states, states of all colors were rejecting real ID. And that was a huge testament to how much uh, real ID was not a good idea. In the spring of 2007, the DHS uh, put out a notice on, of proposed rulemaking. And two fascinating things in this, uh, in this document. One was, they said $17 billion. We were right. We, uh, it reaffirmed our estimate of $17 billion that it would cost. There was a little bit of a victory because they said that there was not going to be an RFID chip. They had taken that off the table. But they hadn't taken the database and some of those other issues off the table. So we were still quite concerned. And if you look at the database and the RFID, I think the passport situation, the new passports, really is the poster child for what can go wrong with a database and with RFID chips. Uh, last year, during the presidential election, Senators McCain, Obama, and uh, Clinton had their personal information hacked into by a State Department employee, not by some rogue person out there, but someone who's being paid by the taxpayer hacked into their information, their database, and got their most personal information. 
And then leading up to the implementation of the passports, we saw State Department officials testify and hold their passport, their new RFID passport up, and actually people in the back of the room were hacking it as he was giving his demonstration. So we had absolutely zero confidence that any sort of database and any sort of RFID chip really would produce any sort of secure identification. So as, as time has gone on, the states have uh, continued to reject it. And I think the reason why we're here is because we have been successful. Congress is nervous. They're worried because one state after the next is rejecting this. So what do they do? They repackage it. Like they repackage everything in this city, and they call it pass ID. And they say, well, it's not going to cost as much. There aren't a lot of the same requirements for database collection. Well, if that were the case, we probably wouldn't be here, would we? <laughs> so what has changed? Virtually nothing has changed. Uh, a few key points. Data collection requirements are still virtually the same. Now, it does not require retention, but also does not prohibit it. So that, that, that's a key point. And also, it says that there needs to be an effective procedure to confirm or verify a renewing applicant's file. And this is where you get into a lot of the, the problems, and Jim may talk about this uh, a little bit later. But if you look at these the databases and a person moving from one state to the next, there's going to be a way that the states are going to have to check information from the state. And how do you do that other through some interconnectivity, a hub, or some sort of pointer system? So once again, you have 50 different databases. And just like any chain, it's only as strong as its weakest link. So the hackers will go in and find that one state that's not protecting the information and use that as a portal. But getting back to the cost, which is in the wheelhouse of citizens against government waste, what we are most concerned about, there's a lot of wrangling about what the cost of pass ID is going to be to the states. The National Governors Association came out and they said, it's only $2 billion. Said, well, okay, let's take a look back four years ago. What did they say about real ID and how much that would cost? And they estimated that to cost about $4 billion. So they were about 20 to 25% right when it comes to a cost estimate. So this pass ID could cost anywhere from about 8 to $11 billion. In 2005, states couldn't afford this, even in good economic times. Today, $11 billion, states really can't afford it. And I have a list of 50 good reasons why states can't afford it. See, Alabama has a deficit of $1.2 billion. Alaska has a deficit of $1.3 billion. The list goes on and on. This is why states can't afford it. What is Pass ID? Pass ID is just lipstick on a pig. And that pig is real ID. And will this really make us safe? Is this going to enhance the security in this country? It won't, because even let's... Uh, take a time trip into, let's say, 20 years from now, and we have a national ID, and you're traveling. Your wallet gets stolen or lost. You go to the airport. They're not going to allow you to go home because you don't have a picture ID. What do you have to do? Do you have to rent a car? Oh, no, you can't rent a car. No picture ID. You're still going to be allowed to travel. And Jim and I have actually played this game back and forth as we've uh, flown in this country without photo ID. And it works. You just go through a secondary line, and, it's, and at times a lot quicker than the primary line. <laughs> but fundamentally think, why 
do they need to know who you are? As long as you're not carrying weapons or you're not a threat to the security of the, uh, of the airplane. So potentially we're going to spend billions upon billions of dollars that we don't have to create a system that we don't need. And uh, as Chris said, you know, ACLU, they, they like to come up with solutions. <laughs> we don't. We're citizens against. We don't have to be for anything. I thought it was a rarity. I wanted to say it. So, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Our final speaker is uh, Jim Harper. Jim is the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, He's also a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. Uh, Jim holds a JD from the University of California's Hastings College of Law. Uh, and Jim is also the author of Identity Crisis, which uh, is probably one of the best identification policy books I've ever read. Um, all, the only identification <laughs> policy book I've ever read, but still it's good. I liked it. And uh, we do provide copies of our books uh, free of charge to Capitol Hill staff. So if uh, after hearing Jim's remarks you're interested in a copy of the book, please see me after the event. Jim? Thanks, Brandon. Thanks to all of you for being here to hear us out. Um, Dave's, I thought Dave's presentation was great. Chris's was great, too. The joke goes like this. Uh, a couple of guys walk into a bar. Uh, when they walk out of the bar, one of the guys has taken the other guy's ID from him, and he has to fly home without it. And that's how you learn how the identification systems in our country work, and we, we have had fun with that. Um, so real ID, pass ID, or no national ID at all. Uh, the, the, the two here have done a great job of, of um, going through these issues, so I'm happy to bat a little bit of cleanup and, and reiterate some of the issues they've talked about and maybe give a little bit more depth, and I'll be uh, really glad to go to questions and, uh, um, and answer the, the things that you really want to hear about. Privacy, privacy issues with a, with a national ID card system like this uh, can be divided up into two, two kinds of, of issues. There's in-system privacy concerns, and then there's out-of-system privacy concerns. So in-system, that's the, that, those are the privacy concerns you have with the card, with the databases, and so on and so forth. Uh, ID fraud, I don't think they specifically mentioned, but ID fraud is one of, the, one of the principal concerns with this kind of thing because the requirements are to have scanned copies of your birth certificates and other identity, uh, other identity documents held by state DMVs. Now, somewhere across the country, with, they have offices every place, and it happens regularly, there is corruption, there is fraud, and people are getting access to the information that's in these databases. And these, these, these documents are sort of the principal entryway to having an identity in this society. And I think the last thing we want to do is to have them in, scanned and put in databases. Their security is having them in paper. And so to the extent it's being done already, birth certificates and such should not be scanned and should not be kept in databases because that provides us with a sort of uh, basic identity security in the first place. Mission creep is, uh, is a form of in-system privacy threat. Once a national ID is in place, it's easy to add on the next, the next use for it. And I'll come back to that a little bit more, but, but we're already talking about several different uses for a national ID system. And so, so once, an, once a system is in place, the reason why we're fighting it so hard here and now is because there can't be a good national ID system knowing that it will attract new uses and new ways to control us as individuals and citizens. The information sharing question that, that Dave alluded to, this is a, this is a, a thing that the, the proponents of Pass ID are advertising rather widely, is that they've done away 
with state-to-state information sharing. There is language in the Real ID Act that requires them to maintain databases that are accessible to other states. That language is in there. Language is not in Pass ID, but the functions that that information sharing capability supports is still in Pass ID. So it's not in the statutory language, but to do the things that Pass ID requires, you have to have the databases of information. You have to have the information sharing. So we hear, if, you're, if you get close to the, the discussion, you'll hear that the hub has been taken out. That's the idea of a, of a it's, it's, it's better than having wide open databases to everybody, a hub type system. But the hub will still have to exist in some form or fashion, even to implement, in, implement Pass ID, which I think correctly is, is viewed as a real ID revival. It is, I suppose, lipstick on the pig of real ID. The cost estimates are another very important element of the debate on Pass ID because the costs for Real ID were prohibitive. $17 billion was the CAGW estimate. It was also the DHS estimate for the total cost of doing Real ID. Uh, $11 billion under the DHS estimate were cost to states, and that's one of the major factors that precipitated the Real ID revolution, the Real ID rebellion, caused states to refuse this mandate. Well, that $17 billion estimate came from the notice of proposed rulemaking. That was the first step in the process by which DHS created the, what, what we finally learned uh, Real ID was going to ask states to do. Well, that figure was so large that DHS went to work as it continued crafting the rule to try and drive the estimate down. And they did two things in the main. One was to extend the deadline, essentially doubling the amount of time. The original rule and the requirement, well, the original rule, the proposed rule rather, uh, would have allowed states five years to implement this, to, to get all state driver's licenses and IDs swapped out so everybody had a real ID compliant license. In the final rule, they gave them about a 10-year window. That meant that states wouldn't have to hire as much new staff. They wouldn't have to have as much new computer equipment, though they would still have to do plenty of both. That drove the total cost estimate, now again a DHS estimate, down to $7 billion. $2.4 billion of, of that would be states. By the way, in both these estimates, about $5 billion in costs were cost to individuals, mostly in the form of time spent standing in line at DMVs and spent looking for the documents that you need to prove who you are just to get your driver's license renewed. That's 250 million hours standing in line by otherwise productive Americans across the country, people who you might end up hearing from if they have to do this. Well, the pass ID... You, you know, I think it's important to say that the, that the proponents of Pass ID want to do the right thing. The folks in the Senate have worked hard because they perceive an impasse. I think they're incorrect about the impasse, and I think they're incorrect about what they came up with. But proponents of, of, of Pass, like the National Governors Association, have estimated that the cost would be about $2 billion to states. But that's kind of a, an estimate that's picked out of the air. And it's important to recognize that the requirements of the Pass ID are much like the original real ID, five years to implement. And so it's much more likely that the, that the cost to states under Pass ID, should it, should it pass, would be much closer to the $11 billion figure that DHS came up with in its original estimate. And this is also a figure that the National Conference of State Legislatures, the American Association of Automobile uh, Motor Vehicle Administrators, and the NGA came up with in their original estimate. So the NGA is contradicting itself, essentially, when it says that the Pass ID Act will only cost states about $2 billion. So that practical stuff is very important, and cost is a big driver in this discussion. But of course, in discussion of national ID and identity security, effectiveness is important. Security, what would we get if we had such a system? And we should never forget that having security is, is a reason why we have a government. 
even libertarians who were sometimes cartooned as not wanting a government. That's why we have government, is to provide security. So if we had a system that provided security, you wouldn't have me arguing against it. I have done a lot of work on identity and identity-based security. I did write a book on it. It's the least bad public policy book you may read this year. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but again, identity-based security, there are really two forms of avoidance. Let me say this first. A lot of people believe, and they're right, that knowing who people are provides you some security. It's true in our everyday transactions, in our everyday relationships. If I loan you my pen, and I know your name or who you work for or whatever, and you walk off with my pen, I can go get it. If need be, I can talk to your parents about it and have them give it, get you to give it back. I can call the police if I want to and say who it is that took my pen. So in our everyday interactions, identity-based security provides something. It does. But it doesn't provide us security against people who are already committed to doing harm to us or to do violence to the society, like terrorists. Uh, many illegal immigrants would not be subject to the limitations of identity-based security. And there's two ways to avoid identity-based security. One is physical avoidance. If a place is controlled with identity systems, you go to a different place or you avoid the place that, that, where that control is implemented. So at national borders, if there's a good strong identity check at the border, you find a way to enter the country someplace other than a border. Terrorists will do that. Illegal immigrants will obviously do that. Now, the 911 terrorists, I think it's worth noting, entered the country using a different kind of avoidance. That's logical avoidance. Get the identity documents that you need to access the system. What they did is essentially apply for visas and come into the country. They applied for licenses using trivial frauds. And I think this is very important to understand because people who advocate this for, for security reasons say the 911 terrorists acquired documents, some by fraud. Well, their frauds amounted to test, uh, attesting that they had lived in Virginia for longer than they had. Very trivial frauds. And if you had real ID back then, it wouldn't have prevented them from getting the documents they needed anyway. So logical avoidance, that is getting the documents you need, would, would, would still allow such a thing to happen again in the future had we not done all the other things that actually secure the country against these kinds of threats. In the immigration context, you would get something out of ha having a national ID. Um, some people would be hindered from, from accessing employment, and thus the incentives to be in the country would go down. And so I think it's fair to say that you would get a, a small benefit. But you'd get a large cost, and they come a couple different ways that people don't recognize. In addition to dollar costs, you would have more avoidance. That is, more employers and more workers would move under the table. And that would breed a, 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 a more disrespect for the rule of law than we already have, under the table working. More fraud and corruption. Already we have many examples where departments of motor vehicles across the country, um, employees there will sell IDs. And there's going to be more demand for these false but, but genuine IDs. Um, the more that we try to place responsibility onto the driver's license and onto the ID. So those are big costs. And those costs come to all of us because an identity system that's very valuable to secure, should we put all this onto the license, is also very valuable to break. And so we'll have a strong but very brittle identity system rather than the identity systems we have today. And maybe I'll come to that during the Q&A, how we should fix this problem for the long haul. Now let's say you have these systems in place and you're still, you still suffer the threat of terrorism, you still have illegal immigration. How do you fix that problem? Let's stand in the shoes of someone who very badly wants to fix that problem. Well, you make it harder to access the society without showing that ID. So you require an ID for access to work. We're obviously debating that in Congress today. You require 
a, a national ID for access to housing. This is a proposal that's already come out. You require a national ID for access to financial services and credit. Bills have been introduced in Congress already to require that. Access to cold medicine even. There have been proposals floated to require showing a national ID in order to access cold medicine. Imagine, imagine all the different dimensions that we can get a lock on society as federal leaders wanting to do the good thing. We can screw down on society and, and try to get at this criminality. But who are we really screwing down on? We're screwing down on the American citizen, the law-abiding citizen who went and got the ID they were supposed to because the DMV told them to, they did all the documentation, and now they're being asked to check to show their ID at all these different junctures in society. Freedom goes away. And so that's why this thing is wrong down the line. Let me talk a little bit before I close and we go to Q&A about the legislative history, where we've, been, where, we've, where we've come from and what the debate is currently. Real ID was, a, was a, a law passed in May of 2005 that stripped out identity security provisions from the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, passed in December 2004. That was the bill that nominally um, implemented the 911 Commission's recommendations. Let me say something about those recommendations, because when you hear that the 911 Commission had real ID or pass ID as a key recommendation, uh, you, should, you should doubt that strongly. Because if you go and read the thing, which I have a couple times, if you, if you count one time all the way through and several times different pieces of it, the 911 Commission spent three-quarters of a page out of 400 substantive pages on the question of identity security. Uh, it didn't substantiate how a national ID system would prevent terrorism in the future. It didn't establish how access to documents allowed terrorism to happen in the present day. So this was not a key recommendation of the 911 Commission. It wasn't something that the 911 Commission spent a lot of time on. Uh, it's kind of a throwaway recommendation of the 911 Commission. And Real ID stripped out what Congress passed based on the 911 recommendations to put Real ID in place. The, the law's terms were to require states to implement by May of 2008, last year, just a little over a year ago. Uh, at that time, no state complied with, with Real ID. It was um, pretty, pretty well impossible to do so, and many states passed legislation barring themselves from, from participating in the Real ID system. Other states passed resolutions asking Congress to please revisit the, the legislation. When we got down to May of 2008, there was a little bit of a showdown because of this deadline. The DHS under the Bush administration, Secretary Chertoff felt very strongly that states should implement Real ID, and he had been advocating for a long time that, that Real ID should be, should be implemented right away or else. But when push came to shove, and when states and some select state governors said, we're not going to implement Real ID, and we're not even going to request an extension of Real ID, the DHS secretary gave those states, and all states, an extension of the deadline, which it did just under its, under its uh, natural power in the law. For, for, for a reason that exists again today, we're facing a December 2009 deadline under the extension where, where the, the past administration just kicked it over to the next one. If states don't implement real ID and should it become law pass ID, the, the real kicker is that the Transportation Security Administration will start to turn away people at airports. That's the threat. Now, there's, there's language in pass ID that says that they can't do that, but they can make it very inconvenient for, uh, for people to travel if they don't have a pass ID. They can require you to, do, to submit to a background check there on the spot. It's a program that's already in place. But if the, if the Department of Homeland Security decides to enforce this deadline against recalcitrant, recalcitrant states, it's going to be federal TSA uniformed people 
who stand in front of Americans and say, I can't let you travel today because you don't carry the national ID. And I think the people who, who do the political math on this realize that the federal government loses in that showdown. The DHS loses in that showdown. State political leaders have the power in this situation. They don't have to kowtow to the federal government. And that's why, should we come to it later in the year, when this, when this supposed impasse comes again, the one we just passed a little over a year ago with Secretary Chertoff, states can stand down the federal government again. And they'll do so, and I, and I think it's appropriate to do so. Um, it's very, very unlikely should, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think pass ID will pass. We'll, we'll again in a year be in the same position we were just a year ago. And the DHS will kick it over and real ID will continue to fail, as it has been doing for years and years now. So pass ID is a real ID revival bill. Uh, it, it, in fairness, it takes some of the sharpest corners off of, of real ID, but it's still a national ID. And there's a principled line you can draw about that. Uh, the pass ID law promises states money, but anybody who's followed the federal budget situation knows that that money is not available. That money won't be forthcoming. And state leaders who believe that there's federal money coming um, are going to learn something different in the very near future. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, let's go to Q&A.